0: Welcome everyone. Today is September 3rd, 2010, and I'm delighted today to be tackling a topic that is, uh, I think, very relevant. Whether you're an adult patient or a, a parent or a teen um, who is affected by mitochondrial disease, and that is caring for the whole person, and how we can broaden our perspective and understand how the symptoms and other underlying issues of mitochondrial disease may have an impact on other symptoms and other underlying issues. So it becomes very important that you don't micromanage, but really take a look at the big picture. I'm especially excited to welcome a new speaker today, Dr. Mary Kay Koenig from Texas. And uh, Dr. Koenig, welcome. Thank you so much for being here with us today. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Koenig, why don't you take a few minutes and tell us a little bit about yourself, and then we'll move right into today's topic. Okay, great. So, um, thank you again for having me. I'm very excited uh, to be participating. Um, I am here with my nurse, Lakeisha Minor, and so she's in the room. Welcome, Lakeisha. Um, uh, we work down here at the University of Texas Mitochondrial Center, and we see both adults and children. Um, I am trained as a pediatric neurologist, but I'm also a board-certified adult neurologist. So, um, I do see adults that have confirmed mitochondrial disease as well as children who either have mitochondrial disease or are being investigated for that. One of our big focuses in our center is is in caring for the entire patient. Um, What we try to do is manage uh, the entire patient's health care to ensure that their mitochondria are actually functioning as well as they possibly can be. So, that is kind of what I'm going to talk to you guys about today, and I'm going to start kind of basic, um, and then we're going to move into a little bit more practical information about what you can do to try to help your overall um, physical status. So the first thing that's important to remember is that our bodies are actually made up of multiple different individual organ systems. These organ systems work together to try to perform the functions that we need for life. And as a medical field, physicians have often divided themselves out into the various systems. And so you have someone who specializes in cardiology. You have someone that specializes in taking care of the GI tract, and so on and so forth. A lot of times what you don't have is you don't have... Physicians who will work together, they just work on their one organ system, and we know that because each of our organ systems work together, they're each important in ensuring that the entire body works as a whole. Each of our organ systems, for example, example the cardiovascular system, is made up of different organs, and this includes things like the heart and the blood vessels. Each of our organs, in turn, is made up of cells, and our cells, in turn, are made up of smaller parts called organelles, one of which is the mitochondria. And as you guys all already know, the main source of the mitochondria or the main function of them is to produce energy. They take our food products and they take oxygen and water and they turn it into energy or ATP that the cells can use in order to allow our bodies to function appropriately. In people with mitochondrial disease, there are literally thousands of different types and severities of this disease. And so in treating someone, we do make generalities and we make um, assumptions and we try to draw people together and, and generalize their symptoms. And that's important because it allows us to make some general statements about how to treat people, but it's also important to remember that each and every person is individual. I don't have any two patients who have the same mitochondrial disease, even ones who have the same mitochondrial disease but they're each different and unique in their own way, and we need to make sure we're treating them that way. So one of the things we worry about in our patients is the buildup of toxic waste. We know that as the mitochondria are producing ATP, um, when they don't function properly, we end up with an excess amount of lactate or lactic acid. And so we do have patients that have lactic acidosis. Um, It is formed naturally in our bodies as a byproduct. Uh, when your mitochondria you become overwhelmed. The problem is that in people with mitochondrial disorders, they can make too much. And when you make too much lactic acid, it causes your pH to go down. And when your pH goes down, your body tries to compensate for that, and it tries to increase the pH back to a more normal level. And so you end up having changes and problems just from having lactate in your blood. Unfortunately, there hasn't been a good treatment determined to fix the problem with the excess lactic acid. Dichloroacetate was was tried. It didn't work. It had too many complications. Um, But it is important to remember that that the lactic acid in and of itself can cause problems if it gets too high. Other things that we worry about are free radicals. I know a lot of you have heard this term. Um, Free radicals are formed as a byproduct of the electron transport chain. And, again, you get too many forms when the mitochondria aren't working properly. And what free radicals do is they go around and they damage all the normal parts of your cells. And so if you have a cell that's otherwise working, but you have an excess amount of free radical production, it can cause severe damage, and ultimately it can kill the cells themselves. So it's important to keep in mind in People with mitochondrial disease, the these two byproducts, the lactic acid and the free radicals, are being overproduced, and they can cause symptoms and lots of medical problems. Ultimately, though, the main problem we run into is a lack of energy production, a lack of ATP. And without enough ATP, your cells can't function, so your organs can't function, and so your body can't function. There's this concept of threshold in people with mitochondrial disease. And what we know is that everyone who has a mitochondrial disease has some threshold that once they go past that, they become ill or more ill. So people with mitochondrial disease on a day-to-day basis make enough ATP. If you didn't make enough ATP, you wouldn't still be alive because you need ATP to do all of your daily functions. But what happens is you can eventually, or when you stress yourself, get sick, and you can kick yourself over past that threshold where your symptoms become much more severe. And when that happens, you're no longer making enough ATP to meet even the most basic necessity. So one of the things that doctors always talk about is a baseline, and everybody has a baseline, and it's different for every person baseline is the place where you feel, quote, normal. And that doesn't mean you feel good. It just means you feel normal. This is where you are on a day-to-day basis and where you're supposed to be. And you can think of it as that your body's kind of balanced. You're producing as much energy as you can produce, and you're expending energy, but you're not expending more energy than you're producing. Anything that causes a drain on your overall energy is going to affect your body as a whole. So, for example, when you get sick or if you have heat and cold intolerance, you have you're exposed to extremes of heat or cold or if you become stressed, any of those things in a healthy person drains their energy and causes them to feel weaker than they were before. But someone with a mitochondrial disease doesn't have the same kind of energy reserves as someone else. And so all of these things tip them beyond where they tip someone else, and they make them feel even worse. So what do you do to prevent all of that? Um, And there are some situations where you can't prevent it. You drain your energy. You get sick. You can't avoid getting sick. It's just important to know what's going on with your body and that is that your energy is being drained from the illness, that's why you feel so bad. We do want to do everything on a daily basis to try to increase your energy stores and make sure that your overall energy balance is in the positive and not the negative. So we know that ATP gets generated from your foods ultimately, cofactors, vitamins, water, oxygen, all of those things come together to go through your electron transport chain and make ATP. So, Ultimately, the better the nutrition is, the more starting material you have to make ATP. Um, We have a lot of patients in this clinic that we follow who have very severe GI symptoms, and they're not able to absorb their food appropriately. And if you're not absorbing the food, it doesn't matter if your mitochondria work or not. You can't produce any more ATP because you don't have any starting blocks. Um, So we do sometimes recommend supplemental cofactors and vitamins that help make all of our processes more efficient. One of the things we stress here in our clinic that is extraordinarily important to people with mitochondrial disease is no fasting. They absolutely cannot fast. Um, The overriding principle with mitochondrial disease is that you don't have enough ATP. Now, if you take a healthy person and you fast them, They have a bunch of ATP stores that they can use while they're fasting. They don't need to be making energy continuously. If you take someone with a mitochondrial disease and you fast them, they're not able to keep up, and they end up depleting their energy stores. So what you want to do is you want to provide a continuous source of energy so we recommend our patients eat frequent, small meals throughout the day. There are some patients that will actually take car- uh, complex carbohydrates, such as starch, uh, corn starch, before they go to bed to try to provide them with a continuous supply of sugar throughout the evening when they're not sleeping. Patients who have to have procedures performed where they're not allowed to eat, we generally will recommend that they be admitted to the hospital the day before and placed on sugar-containing fluids while they're not eating. Um, Other things that I get asked about a lot include low-fat diets or high-fat diets. Um, There hasn't really been a lot of research on this, Um, and there are some concerns with making major modifications to the diet. Again, we generally recommend that our patients have a balanced diet. There are certain types of foods, like sugars versus fats, that do different functions in the mitochondria, and some of them may work better for some patients than others. So if you're considering trying a diet, I would suggest talking to your physician about high-fat versus low-fat and whether they think there would be any benefit for you. But, again, it should be different for each person, and it's going to have to be tailored to the specific mitochondrial defects that each person has. A lot of other information um, out there talks about and uh, chain triglycerides, or MCT oil, and whether or not that would be beneficial. What this does is it can provide an extra substrate for the mitochondria that's more easy to utilize than some other forms of fats. Um, and there are some people who recommend using it. And, and I actually do have some of my select patients on it. The problem is the MCT oil can induce the production of ketones in the body, and ketones are actually acids. And so in people who have excess lactic acid, if you put them on ketones, you can sometimes cause them to, to decompensate or um, become even more ill. So, again, I wouldn't consider doing that without the careful supervision of a doctor and without someone who is actually thinking about your, your metabolism and why it's different than other people's. We always talk about vitamin supplements, things like coenzyme Q10 and levocarnitine. My um, general opinion is that that there is a lot of evidence that coenzyme Q10 and levocarnitine are beneficial. Um, There's not a lot of evidence that any of the other vitamin supplements are. There's also no evidence that they are not. Um, So I generally recommend all my patients take coenzyme Q10 and levocarnitine, and I kind of leave the rest of them up to the patient. Now, sleep and rest is a very important concept in mitochondrial disease, and it's one that we spend a lot of time counseling our patients about. So while you're asleep, your body is expending a very minimal amount of energy. It's keeping your heart beating. It's allowing um, your breathing to continue. But there's no muscle movement. There's not a lot of brain activity. Um, Your body is spending a lot less energy. And one thing that we're looking into here and doing some research on is, is we've noticed that in our patients, they actually drop their body temperature when they go to sleep. Um, and in doing so, it causes their heart rate to slow down and their blood pressure to go down. And this then conserves even more ATP as opposed to having to keep your heart rate up. Um, so we do believe that our patients are, are protecting themselves by doing this, um, so sleep is a very important time for for mitochondrial patients. Um, we know that people with mitochondrial disease often require more sleep than other people, and we think about this as a time where they're recharging or regenerating their ACP that's been de- depleted. One thing we see a lot in our patients is this concept that they've done something strenuous today, and tomorrow they sleep for the entire day. Um, They also need more sleep on a daily basis. We do take care of a lot of kids, and what we see is that the kids have trouble making it through the entire school day. But you see this problem with people, um, older patients who are also going to work. And so what we recommend is that they actually stop and take a nap in the middle of the day to give themselves some time to recharge. And, and even if you're not napping, if you just go sit in a quiet, dark room where you're expending a smaller amount of energy, it allows you to recharge and then perhaps make it through the rest of the day. Another thing that we stress here is pre-symptomatic screening. So we know that a large percentage um, of mitochondrial patients have multiple organ involvement. Um, we know that the heart can be involved. The kidneys are involved in about 10% of our patients. And so one of the things that we tried very hard to do is to ensure that if someone is going to experience an organ problem, we know about it, usually before the patient has symptoms. The reason is that it's a huge energy drain if someone has um, heart failure. So if you just look at the heart, for example, if the heart is beating on a regular basis that expends a certain amount of energy, if the heart begins to fail, it's going to require more energy for the heart to keep beating than it would if it was healthy. And so it may compensate for a period of time, and you may not even know that you're having a problem with your heart, but you're expending more energy to keep your heart functioning, and that's energy that you can't use to do something else. So we have our patients on a routine screening program, and we check their organs on a regular basis. If you know that the heart is failing before the patient develops symptoms of heart failure, you can start them on medication to improve their cardiac function and save their ATP scores. Um, so in, in summary, what we try to recommend for our patients is, again, thinking about everything in terms of energy balance and energy reserve. We want our patients to care for their entire body. We also want them to try to care for their mitochondria in the best way possible. So they need to eat a balanced diet, need to hydrated to get lots of rest. Um, make sure you're taking vitamin supplements, particularly levocarnitine and Coenzyme Q10. Even if you don't think they're helping, um, they could be working on a cellular level. And make sure that you're monitoring for other organ involvement, even if you don't have symptoms in the other organs. It's a great overview, Dr. Koenig, and some very important points, I think, that you brought up that are just, real cornerstones of everyday understanding of mitochondrial disease. And I guess what I would say is that sometimes, I think you're absolutely right, people are um, very caught up in the interpretation of tests or physicians are very focused on their subspecialty and the um, follow-up appointments can be spent more focused on these very minor symptoms without ever really stepping back and saying, well, hey, are you drinking enough and are you stressing are you in the middle of the day? Because those could be contributing to these symptoms. Um, but the other thing that we have to keep in mind is when when you're seeing the cardiologist because you have high blood pressure and the cardiologist says, well, it's not that high, so we're not going to treat that now. It's very different for someone with a mitochondrial disease because it's causing them extra energy expenditure to keep their blood pressure that high. So they need even more so to be functioning in the normal range on all of their organs and be treated earlier for impending organ failure than someone else. Mm-hmm. I definitely would agree. And I guess I bet one of the questions that a patient would ask is, do you have any recommendations on how to get that point across to subspecialists? <laughs> um, no. <laughs> um, we beat it into them here at UT, but I would deny that if anybody asked. Um, the main thing is to know your body and to make sure you have positions that you are working with. And they are working with you, and um, if you have someone who is unwilling to learn about your disease, um they're not going to be providing you with the best care um, well that's that's very true, and it all comes back, I think, to being uh, a great advocate for for yourself or for your child also. Uh, I do have a couple questions that um, were emailed, and then we'll open up the line, Dr. Koenig. If that's good for you, to sure. questions from the group. All right. One of the first questions is um, lactic acidosis and elevated levels of lactate. We hear so much about that, and you um, do a great job providing just an, a general overview. Would you talk for a minute about what are some of the problems that this lactic acidosis can cause? We know it's not good, but what what specifically? Could it contribute to that um, could be troublesome so this is a problem I actually have with the with with trying to get this concept across to other physicians. So as as lactic acid goes high in the body, which it does in the mitochondrial patients, and even if it's not always high, at times when their body or their mitochondria are stressed, the lactic acid can then go up. So one thing that's it's good for it is it's a very good marker for a patient to know where their metabolic or their mitochondrial status is from day to day. So we check lactic acid levels in our patients when they're feeling good, So we know where their lactic acid levels are supposed to be. And then if they come into the hospital or they go to their doctor or the ER because they're not feeling well, their lactic acid level can give us a good indication of how their mitochondria are functioning right then. So that's one of the things that's very important to us with it. The other thing to keep in mind is that if your lactic acid is increased, your pH is low. And your body compensates for that. And so to do that, there are certain changes that you'll see in your physiology. If you start decompensating or if your lactate levels change quickly, you might start seeing trouble breathing. You might start having problems with your heartbeat. It might become irregular. You can have problems with the blood flow um, to different organs in your body, including your brain, your liver, your kidneys. Um, and you can start seeing a breakdown of some of the proteins in your body, which could result in muscle weakness or muscle breakdown. Great. Great answer. And uh, some people get um, a little confused about the specific levels of uh, lactic acid. So uh, what I generally say, and Dr. kane did love your buy-in on this, is that you know, above 2.5 mm-hmm. is abnormal, and but it's not unusual for people with mitochondrial disease to have lactic acid levels that are somewhere between 3 and 7. But the goal is to try to, with hydration and rest and management, to lower that lactic acid level, lactate level, as much as possible. Would you agree or have any comment about that? Yeah, I both agree and have comments. So, um, you know, there are people who, with mitochondrial disease, particularly patients with D mutations, who have normal lactic acid levels. And it's really important to remember that because, one, you don't have to have elevated lactate to have a mitochondrial disease. But each patient, patient with a mitochondrial disease, when they are at their baseline, has a normal value for themselves. So when we come up with reference ranges of what's normal, in, in the scale you're talking about with mitochondria, or with lactate, usually it's up to about 2.2. And they say up to 2.2 is, quote, normal. So what that means is that healthy people can have levels up to 2.2. But each person, even healthy people, mitochondrial patients, whoever you're talking about, will have a normal value for them So, for example, you might check the lactate level in a, quote, healthy person, and their lactate level may be 1.2. And the next time you check it, it may be 1.1, and the next time you check it, it may be 1.25. If that person's lactate level goes to 2, that's not normal for them. So my point with that is that each mitochondrial patient does have a normal lactate level for them, And they need to know what that is because if their normal level is 0.5 and they go to the emergency room and their level is 2.0, that's not normal. Mm -hmm. Great. That's an excellent point. Excellent point. All right. One more question that came in from uh, email. This is um, speaking for Heidi, the red tape advocate, which if you all haven't read her um, articles, you can find them mitoaction.org slash red dash tape. And uh, she writes excellent, very practical articles about cutting the red tape and the bureaucracy and finding uh, resources and support that help with things like um, camps as well as medical equipment and so forth. She says, I have the unique experience of being a patient, parent, and clinician at the same time. I've noticed that there are often several options for care coordination for kids from the Department of Public Health, Medicaid, and other programs, but there are very few programs for adults. Do you know if the medical home project that the American Academy of Pediatrics has created could be adapted for use by adults who could provide the service? The only true case management I see comes from DMR and DMH, which for those of you who don't know is the Department of Mental Health, the Department of Mental Retardation for adults in group homes and the like adults are either left to fend for themselves or are at high risk of needing to be cared for in nursing home settings. I agree 100%, and it's something that we struggle with here every day. Um, We have a lot of patients with mitochondrial disease who are healthy, productive members of society who develop disabilities and begin to have difficulty caring for themselves. Um, and it is very difficult to try to arrange for them supportive care without someone just saying, well, their family needs to provide it. But, you know, as a grown woman who has a job, I know how difficult it would be for me to have to go back to my parents and say, I no longer can take care of myself. And I agree that there are no good resources in place for adults who develop disabilities it is something we struggle with very frequently, um, and I wish I had a better answer for you. Other than that, I agree that something needs to be done. I agree that the pediatric medical home is a good model for that, um, but I also think it needs to be more of a global social support system for patients with disabilities. Great. Thank you for that. So uh, any other comments before I open the lines for um, Questions from the group? Dr. Koenig,
1: ready for those questions? I'm ready. Okay. I'm here.
0: All right, everyone. So um, we'll go ahead and open the line for questions. So uh, I'm sure many of you have comments and questions, and we'll just virtually take turns here and take as many as we possibly can. We have got still have a good um, amount of time, about 25 minutes. So who would like to ask the first question? Just please introduce yourself, give us a, a tiny bit of background, and then go ahead and ask your question.
1: Byron Tweedy from Vancouver Island, uh, mitochondrial supper, 79 years old, as I stated at the beginning. Go ahead, Byron. I have a question to ask on behalf of my two children and four grandchildren. They don't know whether I have nuclear mito, or mitochondrial mutation. Now, nuclear, I understand, it, a, a mitochondrial mutation is maternal inheritance, I understand.
2: Correct.
1: Uh, what what does nuclear, what are they, of course, being a male, I'm not going to pass that on. Uh, nuclear, what implications is there in that for my two children and grandchildren? I, can I pass this on to them, or does it end with me?
0: Well, if you have a mitochondrial DNA mutation, you absolutely cannot pass it on to your children or grandchildren. The nuclear mutations, it depends on the type that you would have. My suggestion would be to talk with either your neurologist or geneticist, um, and see if they have been able to identify your particular mutation, um, and they could help you better with that. It's very it's different for each person.
1: I'm for, I'll just before I go, I'll just say, unfortunately, one test shows I have one, another test shows I have the other. So there you go. Thank you.
0: <laughs> um, I, yeah, and Byron, there's a great article on the MitoAction website that um, breaks down the inheritance patterns and kind of gives you some examples, um, would not give you the specifics of what you have, but would explain the difference between a nuclear and maternal mutation. And uh, to find that, um, you would uh, search the word genetics on the website, and um, it's called Facts Versus Fiction. Um, inheritance of you know genetic inheritance patterns for mitochondrial disease. So, if you need any help finding that link, just email me, Byron, director at mitoaction.org. That's a great article to give you some info too.
1: Thank you very much.
0: You're welcome. Thank you. Um, next question.
2: I have a question on the subject of lactic acid in adult patients. I'm an adult with mito, and. Uh, My lactic acid tends to be below the bottom of the range. And I did come across an article in the mitochondrial news. It was a question, and Dr. Bruce Cohen answered it. And he indicated that if there is renal involvement in the mitochondrial disease, that the lactic acid can tend to dump into the urine. And he indicated that when lactic acid is below the bottom of the range, that that is probably what is occurring. Uh, and I just wondered how how widely known that is and, and if there's other patients that doctors should run into with that difficulty.
0: Yeah, it's definitely something that, that you should consider and that needs to be looked into. So, um, as I mentioned, one of the things that we do here is we do screen our patients at least once a year for kidney failure. of people with mitochondrial disease develop kidney failure, Um, and you may have no symptoms of it, especially early on. So um, the last, you know, a lot of the toxic products in your body go out of your body through your kidneys. And so there's supposed to be regulation in your kidneys that allows a certain amount to go out at a time, and if your kidneys start to fail, then they stop filtering things from your from your blood, and they just allow everything out into your urine, and so you can have a situation where the lactic acid that's in your blood just passes directly into your urine. It's actually very easy to measure <coughs> the acid levels in the urine, um, and I would I would recommend in a situation if your lactic acid levels are low, especially if they were high and now they're low, to have your kidneys checked.
2: Oh, yes, I have large volumes of urine. I have like four and a half liters of urine every day, and I suffer from dehydration, so I'll mention that to my doctor. Thank you.
0: You're welcome. Thank you. Um, and who has another question they'd like to ask, Dr. King? I Can I just ask, is this being recorded or is this not being recorded? Uh, we are still recording, so okay. uh, if you want to ask your question but not identify yourself, that's fine, too. Okay. Thank you. Who would like to ask the next question?
2: I would like to follow up on the um, question about the the, the kidney involvement. Uh, What would you uh, uh, look for as symptoms of kidney failure?
0: Um, Symptoms of kidney failure usually are vomiting, um, large volumes of urine, uh, weight loss is unexplained. Generally, to test for kidney function, there are two tests that are done routinely. One is a blood test where you check a creatinine level. And the other would be just a urinalysis to look and see what's in the urine.
2: Okay, so you would not be looking then at uh, uh, um, body body uh, retention of fluid, um, uh, edema, um,
0: yeah, fluid pain, pain retained, in the kidneys? Fluid retention or dehydration. Any problem with fluid balance could indicate a problem with the kidneys.
2: Okay, thank
0: you. You're welcome. Who would like to ask the next question? I, I, I guess I'll ask. I'm not sure if you have an answer for me, and I prefer not to say my name either. Go ahead. I don't have an issue so much with specialists, but with family and friends um, not understanding this as a whole, as a body of the, as a whole. I'm. I feel like I'm constantly pushed, and they're not understanding that they're trying to push me past my limits. So help us understand a little better what your question is. I'm not sure I have... I I want to know, is there any way to say something to them politely? How, how do I get this across to them? And this isn't anything new. This has been going on for years, and they watched my daughter die.
2: So
0: yeah, I, <laughs> I'd like to make a comment, if, if I could. So I'd just like to say that um, I'm, I'm sorry to hear about your daughter, but um, also... There's no way to make someone understand something that doesn't want to understand. So, um, you know, we, we all have families, and we all deal with our families. Um, you have to know as a person what your body's limit is, and you have to ultimately take care of yourself. Um, what you can do is you can provide information to your family about your disease and about your particular limitations, and you can ask them to read it. And you can give it to them once a week if you want to. Um, but ultimately, it's going to be their decision whether or not they take the time to to learn about it. Okay. Thank you. I agree. Uh, next, next question. Who would like to ask the next question? Hi, this is Anne. Um, I feel like I should know the answer to this question, <laughs> but I don't feel like I do. So I'm going to ask it anyway. Um, hi, Christy. It's Anne Reckling. Hi. My question is, when you've got a kid that you believe is a nuclear um, mutation, you know what complex it is, why is one particular organ system can be so severely affected and the others very, very mildly? And in this situation, I'm talking about GI. I don't understand if the mitochondria in those particular parts of his body are just or why is he vulnerable in that particular area? The, the simple answer to that is that we still don't know. Okay. Um, we know that in certain people, certain organs are more affected than others. We also know, uh, you know, we know that the organ systems that require the most energy are the ones that are the most commonly affected. So the GI tract is one of those. The brain is one. The heart is one. Um, we know that those are the systems that are most commonly affected. Why, in one person compared to the next person, a certain organ system is involved versus different ones in another person? We still don't know why. Okay. Are there any hypotheses? Are there any guesses that they're making yet? Yes. Yeah. Um, so, in each different part of the body, you have different. You have different environments. So. Um, for example, the enzyme CK is present in both the heart and is present in the muscles. But there's actually a different form of it that's present in the heart versus the form that's present in the muscles. So it's very likely that particularly with mitochondria, depending on where the mutation is, there's more of it of that particular protein in the intestines versus the heart versus the brain. Does that make sense? No. Yeah, it does Okay, Okay. and so we do believe there's going to be some of that that's going to come out to explain why there are different symptoms in different organs. Okay, so some can be so severe. I mean, he almost doesn't have his... Right. ...one step away from TPM, but his heart's fine, his brain's pretty good, you know. Yeah, and the other thing we talk about is the genetic background. So what do you have in addition to that mutation? So we know, again, that there are certain genes that affect different organ systems, so you may have, there may be some underlying genetic background that's influencing that as well. Okay. Okay, that makes sense. Thank you. You're welcome. That's actually a great question because um, it is, you know, sometimes all or nothing, right? Um, So, all questions are great. Who would like to ask another question? might be your last chance to ask a question well, to Dr. Cainey, who has some great answers. So, uh, any other questions? I have well,
1: I would here again, since nobody else is jumping in. Uh, Go for it. I'm just wondering to what extent uh, mitochondrial disease can affect the workings of your brain. I was sure a couple of years ago I had galloping Alzheimer's. It turned out the psychoneurologist that tested me said you're in the top 10%, to which I replied. God help the other 90%. But, <laughs> I'm uh, just wondering, uh, does a heart function of 17% ejection fraction, would all of these things in combination not necessarily make me senile, but make me slower, keen, and less ready to respond, uh, less able to do mathematical calculations in my brain? And it's sort of a general question. I'm just wondering how all of these things work together to affect your mind without necessarily throwing you into dementia.
0: Yeah, um, that's a good question. So, a lot of our, a lot of my patients do have some form of neurologic involvement or brain involvement. And it ranges from everything from learning disabilities to seizures to dementia to problems with specific skills like math. Um, the brain is extraordinarily complex, and it requires an unbelievable amount of inner function. And so, um, It seems like every patient with mitochondrial disease should have some brain involvement, but it goes back to that question before of different organ systems and different people. We have lots of patients that don't appear to have any brain involvement, um, and and some that do. We do notice in our patients that as they get tired, they tend to have more difficulty thinking, and and that may have to do, again, with energy levels and overall amounts of ATP that are available. Uh, and, Dr. Koenig, let's talk for a minute about the idea of that threshold that you mentioned earlier in our discussion, because I think that that's um, a struggle for some folks, too, is what is the baseline and how do you um, really know what your threshold is? Can, can we go back to that and talk a little deeper in detail about that? Sure, absolutely. So the the baseline to me is, you know, as I said before, when you feel like you are normal, and that may not be the optimum of health. You know, we have a, we have patients who who never feel quote healthy, but they know what they're supposed to feel like on a day to day basis, and that's what we call their baseline. And when they start feeling different, worse than than their baseline, we know that there's a problem. Um. So, for example, you know, we have patients who are on tube feeds who are able to feed at 45 cc's per hour, and they feed that way on a daily basis, and then one day, all of a sudden, they can only feed at 40 cc's per hour. Well, that's something wrong. Their baseline has changed. So we, we try to think of it as, as what happens to cause that change from baseline, and in general – we know that there's a certain amount of ATP required for you to function at your baseline. And at some point, you don't have enough ATP, and so you deviate from your baseline. And that's what I mean when I say a threshold. And it's different for each person. So one of the things you commonly will see is we have a patient who's able to walk, and they walk just fine, and... They get all around school or work all day long. They go to their car. They drive. They come home. And then one day they decide they're going to go to the mall. And they go to the mall for four hours and walk all around the mall. And then the next morning they can't get up. They're too exhausted. Mm-hmm. Well, they bypass their threshold ability for the day. And they cause themselves to run out of energy. And now they want—they need to lay there for six hours and recuperate all of their energy. And it's different for each person with a mitochondrial disease, but it's a common theme that we see again and again, which is there is some amount of activity that they're able to do, but they eventually will reach a limit where they can't do more than that without having to pay for it the next day. Chasing yourself becomes very important. It does, but again, it's also important not to try to compare yourself to somebody else because it's different for each person and you have to learn what works for you. I have another question that's coming in come in through email. Uh, Heidi says, "I've noticed many doctors feel that if a symptom fluctuates such as hearing or vision, it has to be a conversion disorder or a psych issue. How do you recommend dealing with this?" Oh, that's a tough one. And and I first I would like to agree with Heidi that I have heard that before. Um, my best recommendation to deal with that is to get some sort of documentation of what's going on when it's going on. So, for example, if your hearing is fluctuating, you need to have hearing testing performed while you're having problems with the hearing, and it needs to be objective testing. So, for example, you can do a hearing test where they they ask you to raise your hand. if you hear a sound, and, and that is what we call subjective, which means you could fake the results. But an objective test is more like a brainstem evoked response, which is where we measure the brainwaves to see how well the sound is transmitted through the ear to the brain, and you can't, you can't fake that. And so if you're able to then get objective evidence that the doctors can't argue with, they have to believe it. Go um, ahead what, what well, introduce yourself. Oh, hi, Christy. It's Allison from Maine. Go ahead, Allison. Um, I just have a question for you. It's about Charcot-Marie Tooth and whether there's any correlation between that and mitochondrial disorder. There's some question that my daughter, she's nine, that she has that as well. She has a very high arched foot. Have you heard of anything? like that? Yeah, there's there. Well, first of all, there are types of Charcot Marie Tooth that have now been found to be caused by a mitochondrial disorder. Oh. So we'll start with that. But secondly, the the pes cavus or the the foot that you're describing, mm-hmm. the Charcot Marie Tooth foot, that's a sign of neuropathy, not necessarily Charcot Marie Tooth. So mitochondrial disease does cause neuropathy. and you can see that kind of foot in anybody with neuropathy. The reason the doctor goes to Charcot Marie Tooth where they see that foot is because that's the most common cause of the foot changes like that. So would you would you ever recommend putting she's been through so much putting her through the testing to find out if she has that, or is it kind of academic? Is there really no point? So well, has has your daughter been identified with a genetic cause for her mitochondrial disease? And no. So. So likely she has some neuropathy that's why you see the foot changes um, and and it may help you find the actual genetic cause for her mitochondrial disease. I don't think they're independent of each other. I would think that it's that they're definitely related to one another. Okay, great, thank you very much. You're welcome. Another question that came in through email. Uh, this person says, "I was recently diagnosed with complex one and 3, Now, my daughter, who has not been tested, has been diagnosed with long QT syndrome, um, and this patient is wondering your opinion on a relationship between the two and if she should be tested. Um, I don't have a lot of cardiology experience, so I don't know what the um, incidence of long QT syndrome is in the general population. Um, I would suggest talking to the, her daughter's cardiologist. And if it's, it's not something that's really common, then, yes, she should consider testing the daughter for a mitochondrial disease. Great. Thank you. How right. do you test the, go ahead. We have time for one more question. How do you test an adult for lactic acidosis? I'm sorry, what? How do you test an adult for lactic acidosis? So, is this a blood test? Do you have them run around or I mean you just draw their blood? You want to draw it while you're resting. Um no so no activity beforehand. And um you need to draw it without a tourniquet on. So the thing they tie around your arm to draw your blood, you shouldn't have one of those on when they draw it. Cool. Okay, thank you. You're welcome. Dr. Koenig, you are just a plethora of information. You've answered questions all over the map, and I think you've also really helped just give some great general advice and overview information that is really helpful and and very practical. Do you have any other thoughts or comments that you would want to share with the group as we wrap up? Um, I just want to say thank you again for inviting me to participate. I have not been that of involved with the minor but I have been on your websites, and I appreciate all of the information that you have out there for your patients. Um, I always want to stress that everybody has a baseline, and, and everybody's baseline is different. So just remember the most important thing in caring for yourself is getting to know where you're supposed to be and recognizing when you change from that. That's great advice, and let's talk for one second about Camp For All. I understand you're the camp doctor, and uh, before we got started, we were chatting a minute about this, this earlier. Uh, camp For All is hosting a weekend for mitochondrial disease at the end of October, and uh, both children and their families, as well as adult patients with their spouse or caregiver, are welcome. And uh, Dr. Kane, could you say a few words about that also? Yeah, we're very excited. Um, I've been to Camp for All before, and this camp is designed for people with disabilities um, so that they're able to do everything that everybody else can do. There's a swimming pool um, that you can take wheelchairs into. Um, there's a zip line that's designed that's wheelchair accessible. There's fishing, horseback riding, all kinds of stuff. And in Texas in October, you're going to have about the best weather of anywhere It's usually very, very pleasant here in October. Um, And we are extremely excited about having this opportunity for um, mitochondrial families to get together and not only enjoy some time outside and enjoy some time with their families, but also to get to know each other and be able to interact and talk about their disease. Well, we're very excited about it also. I think that this is um, extremely important. As many of you know, we sponsored um, many kids who went to Camp Corey in Seattle uh, over the summer and are enthusiastically interested in um, partnering with Camp for All for this weekend and for future opportunities for this type of get-together. I think it's especially great for the adult patients to be able to be involved also. Um, I've always felt like there's a lot that... The parents of children, like myself, who has a daughter with mitochondrial disease, can learn a lot from the adult patient who can verbalize what the symptoms are like. And, right. um, and so there's, there's a real great synergy there. Um, so if anyone would like more information right away about that, you can email me, director, at mitoaction.org, and I will um, send you that information, and I will also be posting some information about that on the website next week. Um, so you can look for that as well. Uh my, my only other closing thought is I encourage all of you to, um, no matter where you are, to help participate in Awareness Week by being a virtual <coughs> walker or getting some of your friends and being a virtual team to celebrate and honor those who have mitochondrial disease. And you can do that by visiting our website. It's mitoaction.org slash walk. Uh, Dr. Koenig, you really have been such an excellent resource <coughs> today, and you're obviously – so personable and um, so interested in wanting the best thing for your patients, and so I really appreciate that and also very much appreciate your time to talk with us today. Thank you so much, and everyone, please join me in thanking Dr. Koenigs. Yes,
1: thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You're great.
0: You're welcome. So, uh, uh, Dr. Kays, uh, we'll look forward to putting the summary up on the website and uh, future conversations. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Right.
2: No.